If you'll uh, join me one more time in a word of prayer before we jump in. Father, uh, you know that our hearts are dull, slow to hear, slow to understand, slow to speak spiritual realities. In fact, it is impossible to do any of those apart from your grace. And so we pray, Spirit, that um, we would speak spiritual truths, that we would hear with spiritual ears, and that you would warm our hearts and open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. It'll be uh, helpful for us tonight to have a, a proper understanding of where we've come from to understand this passage. So way back in chapter one, uh, we remember that Luke is writing to Theophilus an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so therefore, uh, we have to understand that his gospel is organized uh, particularly, that certain things are grouped together. And so this passage comes at the end of the past couple chapters, which are outlining uh, Jesus' warnings to the Pharisees and the Jews about presuming that they are going to be a part of God's kingdom um, when they are rejecting him. Particularly, I think the, the end of the last chapter, chapter 13, has to be in view as we talk through these verses tonight. And so in the last part of chapter 13, we, we saw two groups. One group was those that Jesus said would come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And those are the groups that will be partakers of the kingdom. But we also saw another group, um, a group that was not willing to come under the authority of Christ. They are excluded. And so the engaged reader has to ask the question, well, how do we know who is a part of which group? How do I become a part of the group that will be included in the kingdom. And thankfully, Jesus answers that question here tonight by using the Pharisees as almost a case study of those who will not be included in the future kingdom and contrasting them with those that he will bring in. And so the question to go back to as we work through the text is, who will dine with the king? Who will dine with the king? And so Luke uh, clues us into the context of where actually this entire story is going to take place here in verse 1. We read that a Pharisee has thrown a banquet or a dinner um, on the Sabbath. He's, he's readied his house. He's prepared the food, invited guests, including Jesus. And uh, these, these dinners, these banquets, they were a big deal in those days. I mean, at a basic level, uh, the best type of food was prepared, including meat, which is more of a rarity uh, in those days. But, but more importantly, there, there was a social um, aspect to these banquets, that the host would get honor uh, for throwing a pop proper feast, and also he would invite people. There was an invite list, and within that invite list, there was almost a ranking or an ordering of importance for those who were invited, which we'll get into more in a second. And so throughout this time, Jesus uses the fact that they're at this earthly feast to make points about the heavenly feast. So Luke writes that the Pharisees in, in verse 2 were, were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And so, so right away we see that this is not a casual, friendly invite to dinner, that it appears that the Pharisees have brought in this man with dropsy or edema, intense swelling of the legs, to see if Jesus would heal him. It's entirely possible that maybe the man, as was common in those days, was simply watching or in the area of the banquet. But the fact that the Pharisees were watching him, and this is the first interaction that takes place, makes me propose that this is a plant by the Pharisees to test Jesus, because in their 
addition to the fourth commandment, the, the Sabbath, they've added this addition that prohibits healing on that day. And so they want to see if Jesus will break that man-made rule on the Sabbath. Hence, Jesus replies in verse 3, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they cannot reply to these things. If any of that sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is now the, the third recorded time where pretty much the exact same situation has happened in Luke's gospel. First in chapter 6, and then more recently in chapter 13. And again, the exact same outcome happens. Jesus takes the man, heals him, rebukes the Pharisees, and they have nothing to say. Um, but however, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, Luke is not merely repeating things just to repeat them. He has a purpose, a point, to repeating this for the third straight time in his Gospels. And his point is this, is that the Pharisees, though they see Jesus, they've heard his ministry and his teaching, they know his healing power and his grace, still are responding the exact same way now as they were in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke is pointing out the hardness of heart, that they're unwilling to accept Jesus' authority, his words, they're still trying to prove that he is, he is a false prophet, even though he has proved over and over again by his miracles that he is not. So the repetition serves to drive home the point that they are still seeking their own um, welfare, their own status as opposed to Christ. Additionally, this initial interaction, it serves as, as quite the contrast. We see Christ as, as the great physician delighting to heal this sick man. That this, is, this is why he came. He came to heal the sick, to cleanse them of their physical infirmities and their spiritual infirmities, both their sin and the effects of sin. The, the good king is willing to heal this sick man. In fact, he delights to heal this sick man. Contrasting that, we have the ruling Pharisees who are more unwilling to heal this man. They do not want him heal, healed at the, because they, they desire their own welfare. They desire to follow their own rules. They're, they're willing, though, to break those rules for their son, if he was in trouble on the Sabbath. In fact, they're, they're willing to break those rules for their ox, a simple animal, but not willing for Jesus to heal a fellow image bearer. This is, this is the height of religious hypocrisy, that they actually value a beast over this man. They were renowned for their supposed holiness and religiosity, that, but they're clear lawbreakers. The second greatest commandment, loving your neighbor as you would love yourself, is completely ignored so that they can follow their own man-made Sabbath rules. All they care about is their own interests, but it's dressed up in, in religious piety. And knowing their own hypocrisy, they, they have no reply to Christ. They're silent when he asks his questions, and they're silent when... He heals the man. Imagine that scene, if you're watching this banquet, these are the religious scholars of the day, the elites, the religious rulers, what everyone looks up to, and with two one-sentence questions, Christ has rendered them completely mute. The, the trap that they thought they set for Jesus is like a, a net with no netting. It's, it's really no net at all, no trap at all. And um, as a side note, before moving on, this really points to the absolute foolishness of philosophies and ideologies that oppose Christ. Christ is, is wisdom itself. 
No, no understanding, no knowledge comes apart from him. And so as Christians, we don't need to fear people or the world or institutions that try to oppose a biblical worldview. They might appear strong or powerful, just like the Pharisees did in those days, but, but the Pharisees are rendered completely foolish. They, they knew what was happening. This is the third time that Christ is healed in this way, and they still can't even mount one word in response to Jesus. And so, Christian, don't be afraid of the family member that makes you feel foolish for believing the gospel or the co-worker that tries to attack a biblical worldview. At the end of the day, they will be proved fools, liars, and God will proved, be proved true. And so be bold in declaring the gospel. Ask the Spirit for courage in declaring truth, because it is true. Um, now, in verse 7, uh, we move on, and Jesus sort of further calls out the Pharisees. So, so he's already come in, and the first thing he's done is he's called them hypocrites, in a sense, and now he's going to move forward to talk about the guests who have come. And so we, we sort of imagine the, the, a stereotypical, disastrous family Thanksgiving dinner in which before the food is even served, you have that one uncle stirring the pot, all the family members are at each other's throats, and that anyone with, with any sort of decency or social etiquette is, is utterly mortified. And whether you've, you've seen those as an instigator or a bystander, um, or you've just heard of them, that there's a sense in which everyone wants to, to move on or even press pause on the whole thing. Uh, but Jesus doesn't move on. Instead, he, he doubles down and he proceeds to rebuke uh, the Pharisees attending the banquet. So we read in verse 7, Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so when, in, when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. This is the second piece of evidence Jesus is presenting in his case against uh, the Pharisees. And Luke help cl helps clue us in on the point Jesus is trying to make um, in verse 7, pointing out that the Pharisees were all trying to get the places of honor, the places of prestige at the banquet. And we need to understand what's going on here what those places of honor are. It's similar to when James and John with their mother asked Jesus, uh, Lord, let us sit at your right hand and at your left in the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the sense is those closest to the host, sitting nearest to him in proximity, are the most honored by the host and most honored in the eyes of all those attending. It's similar to a wedding today when the tables closest to the bride and groom, typically the, the bridal party, are the ones that are acknowledged as, as closest to the groom. They're the most honored. Except in those days, there's no seating assignments. And so the Pharisees are, are scrambling to get the places of most importance to be seen in the, the, the best possible light by all those um, attending the banquet. And so, so Jesus gives uh, instructions here that are both practical, but also point to, to a deeper reality. On, on the practical side, he's telling them, don't try and fight for those places. Because if, if someone comes in who's more distinguished, more beloved by the host, the host is going to ask you to, to move to the nearest open table, which at that point is probably farthest away from the host. And so the, the attempt at glory will end in shame. On the other hand, practically, Jesus is saying, sit in the lowest place. Because if the host loves you as the guest, 
He will see you and say, no, 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 you need to be moved up higher, closer to me, and you will be exalted in the eyes of all those attending the banquet. While definitely practical, I think Jesus is making a little bit of a deeper point, and that's seen in verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This serves as both a rebuke and also a warning to the Pharisees. It is a rebuke is, is that they are seeking the honor of man above all else. We see over and over in Luke's Gospels that the Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They are, in a sense, addicts to what man thinks of them. They love to be put on a pedestal. And those that try to exalt themselves in that way cannot honor God. Elsewhere, Jesus says that he knows that the Jews do not have the love of God in them because they delight in the honor of man over the honor of God. Loving the Lord and being self-seeking are incongruent. You cannot serve two masters. Additionally, there's a sense in which this lust after the approval of man is an attempt to to replace God. The very leaders who are charged to point the, the people to the Lord are spending all their days trying to get the people to honor them instead. Exaltation has a a worshipful connotation in the sense that the Pharisees want to be worshipped, exalted, instead of leading the people to worship the one true God. And this this is a breaking, quite simply, of, of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me by them attempting to receive praise and honor from man um, rather than point them to the Lord. More than that, however, um, they are leading all those around them to break the first commandment. Seeking honor from man is trying to get all those around you to worship you instead of the Lord. In our context, this would be called people-pleasing, an intense desire to be liked to a point where it drives all your behavior. This isn't a personality type or a harmless temperament. It's, it's sin. It's attempting to be God, in a sense. And the, the Pharisees, as chief people pleasers are actually leading the people to disobey God and be breakers of the first commandment themselves. And so as a result, this rebuke is is also a warning. Those who attempt to replace God and be exalted themselves will be humbled at the end of the day. They will be brought very low and ashamed on the day of judgment. This is definitely a general truth of life for all of us, But here, Jesus' rebuke is meant to further color in why the Pharisees will not be willing to enter his kingdom. Not only are they hypocrites, as we've seen, but they're also worship thieves as well. And we'll we'll see in a little bit what that leads to. Jesus, he's not quite done, however. Uh, The guests have been specifically called out. And so there's only one person left in the room who has not had the unwanted spotlight turned on them, and that's the host. So naturally, uh, Jesus now turns to the host. Uh, We see in verse 12, he said, Also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, Jesus gives a a practical teaching that points to a deeper reality. See, hospitality was a big deal in that culture, but it also served as a social tool. You would invite those of equal or greater social status than you to to not only gain sort of social clout yourself, but also it put those you invited in a sense of a social debt. 
where they were required to actually repay your generosity and hospitality at a later date. This is like, for those of you in the business world, networking at its worst on steroids. So in the business world, you network uh, with people, you, you talk shop, you make connections, you meet. Um, but at its worst, it's purely transactional. The two parties really don't care about each other. They're trying to gain from each other. It's selfish. So someone younger might try and network with someone older so they can get connections and maybe a job in the future. And someone older might network with someone younger so that they feel good about themselves and they can um, just share their wisdom. Uh, much worse than this, uh, the Pharisees would invite those not because they love them, but because they sought to be repaid by them. So therefore, uh, this teaching that one should invite the marginalized in the society rather than the religious elites would, would be extremely odd because the poor, the lame, the blind, they, they, they can't repay the host. And this points to the fact that, that God's people, we, we are to be people that are servants, not trying to be served. We are to be willing to associate with those that actually can't repay us at all. And what Jesus is not saying that we can't have dinner with our friends and family, but he's saying we shouldn't choose who we're hanging out with, who we spend time with, simply because we want to gain something back from them. However, like I said, there, there's a deeper reality here. He's getting down to the root motivation of the banquet in the first place. Does the host desire to be repaid by man or by God? While outwardly, the host seems to be doing a generous act, the Lord sees the heart. It's always about the heart. And really, the Pharisees um, is disguising his narcissism with a thin layer of altruism. He's disguising his desire to be repaid by man with a thin layer of generosity. And so now, this is the third piece of evidence presented by Christ. The Jewish leaders do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. As he says elsewhere about them, they do all that they do to be seen by others. And again, they are proven to be lawbreakers by showing partiality to the rich instead of favor to the poor. They would prefer the temporary repayment from man instead of the eternal repayment from God. Their priorities are, are completely wrong. And, and one is left to wonder if this type of person would even desire to be a part of God's kingdom if they're so busy building up their own kingdom here on earth. And so, so now Jesus finally seems to be done. He, he's laid out his case against the Pharisees, exposing their hypocrisy, their desire to be honored by man instead of honoring the Lord, their desire to be repaid by man instead of being repaid by the Lord. And in the process, the incarnate God of love has insulted every single person in the room. Imagine trying to move forward with the banquet after that. So whether to try and change the subject and avoid another round of rebukes, or for another motivation, uh, we read in verse 15 that when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed is everyone who will take part in the future kingdom. That the Jews were waiting for the promised Messiah to come consummate this kingdom. And this man is saying, Blessed is everyone who will be a part of that feast. However, this statement shows the exact point Jesus is trying to drive home. The Pharisees and many in the Jewish nation will not partake in that kingdom. This man thinks that this is some far-off future event when they are rejecting Jesus, who is the consummator, the Messiah, the one who is bringing in the kingdom. And he thinks that they will partake in that feast when their sin is actually leading them to reject the very king 
of the feast. And so Jesus illustrates this with one last parable. We read, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said to him, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore cannot come. Setting the scene that there's a man who has prepared a great banquet similar to the one all our, the, the characters in the story are all at today or in this passage. Uh, he has sent invitations to, to many people beforehand, generously inviting them to partake in the feast. So they, they know the banquet is coming. So at the time of the feast, the animal has been killed, the food and drink has been prepared. He sends out a second invite, telling them the time has come and that they are to come to the host's house. However, something then happens that would appear ridiculous to the Jewish listeners. The invited guests, who, remember, have already agreed in the first invite to come to the banquet, begin making excuses. One said that he has to go and see his land that he just bought. And, and that's rather odd because he can go to the banquet that the land will still be there. It's like saying you can't go to a wedding because you bought a house three weeks ago. Another says he has to go and see his, his oxen. But again, going to the banquet won't lead to the demise of the oxen. And, and the last says, I, I have married a wife. I cannot come. But if that were true and he were consistent, he, he could not go to a banquet the entirety of his marriage. And so these are foolish excuses. However, Far more than being, being foolish, they're dishonoring to the host. They're rejecting his hospitality and generosity. This is, this is personal. They're rejecting him more than anything else. You see, the, the great banquet in this parable is being used by Jesus as a response to the man's statement in verse 15 about who will eat bread with the king in the kingdom of God. He's using this parable to answer the question we asked at the beginning, because this banquet is analogous to the heavenly banquet. The man presumes that he and the Jews, as God's chosen people, will all taste the goodness of that kingdom. Yet Jesus corrects that assumption. He has been preaching over and over again in Luke's gospel that the kingdom has come near, it is inaugurated, it has come near to them. And yet the Jews, who have already see, received the invitation to that kingdom by being God's chosen people, hearing his word for thousands of years, seeing his faithfulness time and time again, are like the foolish people in the parable who are rejecting it on the day that it is ready. And so now we can see why Jesus rebuked them so sharply. They're in grave danger in light of their sin. No one whose hearts are so full of self-glory and honor uh, would truly delight in God's kingdom. So then we must ask, what, why specifically is this the case? And we've been talking about this, but I would propose that primarily it is because these people desire their own honor over God's honor. They desire their own glory over God's glory. If you think one more time about what Jesus has rebuked them for, it is that they mistreat and burden their fellow image bearers, but don't follow those same rules themselves. They lust after the honor and approval of man. Even their perceived generosity is for the purpose of being repaid themselves. They are self-worshippers. They are self-exalters. And by nature, this self-centered lifestyle is an attempt at dethroning Christ as king. They are confessing that they deserve glory instead of the Son of God. They are trying to replace the king's words that he is the king 
that every knee will bow before him with their own words. Another, another way of saying this is they're calling Christ a liar. They're saying that what he is saying to them is not true. They're denying that he is the king of the eternal kingdom and would rather have their authority be the law of the land instead of his. This is their attempt at throwing off the yoke of God so that they can please and worship themselves. And those who are all about themselves will neither desire nor partake in the eternal banquet because that feast is all about the king receiving the honor and the glory. That feast is about the bride receive, or the bridegroom receiving his bride. God will not have heaven be filled with people that are trying to steal his glory and his crown. So like the host in the parable, God has invited the Jewish people to the heavenly banquet through the gospel preached in the law and the prophets, through the prophecies about his son, and yet they are purposely rejecting him to pursue their own desires. And the result, seen in, in verse 24, is a, a weighty thing. Jumping down there uh, quickly, we, we read, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. An extremely awkward dinner ends in a heavy threat. If these people do not repent and turn, they will not be included in the kingdom. So then we have to ask, who, who will? What about the group at the end of chapter 13 that will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God? And, and we find that answer in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Two groups uh, seem to be included. First, uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame are brought in. These are the dregs of society who are deemed unclean by the religious leaders. Then a second group is brought in, um, those that are out in the highways and the hedges. This group living outside the city, far off from Israel, can be seen as the Gentiles. Those were the most unclean of the unclean, who are far off and alienated from God's family. And that they now seem to be prophetically included in the kingdom. And this, this doesn't shock us as much as it should. The first group were a group of people that were thought to be cursed because of sin. They could not worship in the temple. They were ostracized from the community. Whatever holiness was for a Jew, these people were on the other end of the spectrum. The second group, the Gentiles, they're off the spectrum. They are the enemies of God. The Jews would not intermarry with them. They could not adopt anything from their culture. They wouldn't even eat a meal with them. Saying these people, the Gentiles, were not a part of God's kingdom would be like saying the sky is blue to a Jewish person. And so Jewish, Jesus is completely flipping the script on who is brought into the kingdom, who is saved. In fact, the lowest tier of Jewish society and even the Gentiles are brought in ahead of the religious elites. It isn't those that know enough of the Torah. It isn't know those that are honored by society. It is the undeserving who God saves. It is the ones who acknowledge their need for a savior, a king. This is the humble being exalted and the exalted being humbled. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that salvation belongs to those who are lowly. In heaven, there will not be one single person who thinks they have merited their way there. Every single soul will acknowledge that they do not deserve to be a guest. And all people will therefore give honor and glory to the king for the grace that he has shown them. 
So if one desires to be exalted at the judgment day by Christ, one must humble himself now and identify with the poor and crippled and even the completely unworthy Gentiles. This is the group all of us should want to be associated with, the group that truly knows how unworthy we are, not the group that pridefully presumes that we will make our way to eternity on our own. However, as, as we reflect on this reversal, uh, we must not think that, that Jesus somehow failed, that he, he really wanted the first group, but when they rejected his invitation, he said, well, okay, I'll go with plan B and invite sort of the marginalized of the society. That would be a wrong interpretation of the rejected invitation. Um, in reality, that rejected invite shows two things. First, the kindness of our Lord, that the host does not need to throw the banquet. He does not need to freely and generously give such a, a great feast to these people. These are the people who have year after year, generation after generation, rejected the kindness of the Lord their God. And yet Jesus is still offering them repentance and faith, entrance into the kingdom. That the rejected invite first shows the benevolent goodness of our God. Secondly, though, the rejected invite shows the justice of God. Think about who is more guilty for not attending the feast. There are those that were never invited. They didn't know about it. And then there were those that were invited well beforehand, that knew what a joyous feast this would be, that knew the wonders of eternity with the Lord. And they still rejected the host and said no. Therefore, their inclusion is, is justified. And God's verdict, his justice is shown to be right. Uh, this is similar to the difference between a crime that is committed um, in ignorance versus a crime that's committed when it's premeditated. Both are crimes, both are lawless, both are deserving of punishment, but the one that was premeditated is so much worse. And whenever we see those situations, we actually delight in justice being administered for such a heinous act, for a premeditated crime. Purposeful evil being punished magnifies how good and true good justice is. And so it is with this invitation. Far from Jesus' failing when the Jewish leaders reject the offer of the kingdom, this simply serves to magnify and glorify the justice of God in excluding them in the first place. And we see this all throughout scripture in our own lives. Um, the gospel is preached, the good news is declared to those that listen, and, and, and some hear and repent and believe, and some do not. They reject the message. This doesn't mean God failed. All who are not at the banquet at the end of the day and all who are at the banquet are there by God's will. Everything goes according to his design. So now, as we think about this teaching, how are we to respond? Uh, first, I think we just have to examine ourselves. The Jews assumed a future with the Lord despite living their lives completely for themselves in the present. If you grew up in a Christian home but live however you want to live, there must be an honest examination of your present state. As Jesus says in John 5, how can you believe if you accept the glory that comes from man but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, how can you even have faith if all you desire is your own glory that comes from man? And so the warning Jesus gives here that those who live their own whole lives for their own pleasure will not be saved is a timeless warning. It's just as relevant now as it was 2,000 years ago. Who you glorify now is a hint at your eternity. And so if there's only a desire to glorify self with no mustard seed of desire for the Lord's glory, uh, take heed of Jesus' words. 
Second, though, uh, for those who are future partakers of the kingdom, for bought believers, there's a self-examination that we need to have as well. One of the most shameful things that we see in the Bible and in church history is when God's people act exactly like the world. That when the redeemed people of God, who have been bought with the precious blood of the Lord, act exactly like those who are opposed to the Lord. And we saw that, that the primary reason Jesus is showing why the Pharisees are rejecting him is this pursuit of their own honor. And um, we live in quite possibly the most self-obsessed culture in the history of the world where the message of, of self being king is shouted from the housetops. And so I think we'd be foolish to think that does not um, seep its way into our own lives and into the church. And that can take a, a wide variety of forms in the visible church. It can look like discipleship being done, not because we want others to become more obedient to Christ and love him more, but because we love the, the feeling of worth it gives us. We don't actually care about those that we are over. We just want to be over them. This can take the look of, of partiality or favoritism in which we, we pursue the charismatic brother and sister and we try and get coffee with them and hang out with them while completely ignoring the one who is less engaging. And we could go on and on with, with these lists, pursuing theological knowledge just to be that guy or that girl that has the answers or being jealous or envious of another person's spiritual gifts because we think that that would make us feel more valuable, better about ourselves. Um, regardless of the example, motivation matters. Our motivation should be to desire the Lord's excellencies, to, to proclaim them, not our own. But yet this, this sin is insidious because the outward acts look the same. If we imagine two husbands on, on Valentine's Day, and, and both of them book a nice restaurant, their wife's favorite restaurant. They buy her flowers, take her out, they affirm her as valuable, worthy of love. They do everything, everything to a T. But one husband does it because he genuinely loves his wife. He desires to serve her, to show that she is valuable, to remind her of her worth, to treat her. The other husband, however, does it so that he feels good about himself, so that she will respect him more. Maybe she'll post it on social media and all his friends will see what a good guy he is. Which of them truly loved his wife? It was the first. Motivation matters. Just, just ask yourself this question as you go to bed every day. What is the best part about your day as you reflect, as you hit the pillow? If it is consistently situations and interactions in which you were glorified, you were honored, people elevated you, an idol may be present. At the end of the day, we should be able to say with the psalmist, not to my name, not to my name, but to yours be the glory. Because as partakers of the kingdom, we are about the king. We desire his name to be honored above our own because of his kindness to us, to the free grace he has given us in his son. That is why we pray, hallowed be thy name on a daily basis. We want him to be greater and us to be less. And this is the humility Jesus talks about in verse 11. It's not humility before man, it's humility before God, recognizing that he is due the praise, not ourselves. And I want to emphasize that we will never, ever, ever do that perfectly on this side of eternity. Our motivations will always be mixed. However, we need to guard our hearts against clothing religiosity with a veneer, a, a mask, when in reality we want our own glory and fight and try and strive to let God be elevated, not ourselves.
However, saints, lest you be discouraged upon looking at your soul and feeling like there is nothing in your life that you do for God's glory. I think there is abundant hope for us in this text. Think about who is brought into the great feast at the end of the day. It's the unclean, the dregs of society. Even the Gentiles, the dogs are compelled to come in. So for those who look at themselves and have no confidence in themselves, they see that they are unworthy, they are unclean, they don't desire the Lord's honor, they can't repay the host. It is those exact people who God proactively goes and compels to bring into his feast. The Lord knows that they cannot repay him. The Lord knows that none of us can repay him and yet still prepares a seat for them. Our God delights to bring in these types of people, unclean, poor, unrighteous, and he makes them clean, rich, righteous. God brings in guests who have nothing intrinsically valuable about them, but makes them valuable. Look at the the verbiage the hosts use here. He says the servants brings and compels people to come into the feast. There's a level of strength to this. This invitation is, is effective, and God's eternal feast will be full. The host has decided that these are the people who are partaking his feast, and so they come. They're compelled to come. We saw earlier that God didn't fail when the Pharisees rejected his invite. In the same way, he does not fail when he compels people to come in. He will bring in those whom he has called. Christ promises that he goes to prepare a place for his people. That means there's not one prepared place in heaven that will not end up filled. Attendance is mandatory for the Christian. Christ promises that he will not lose one whom the Father has given him. There will not be one unworthy saint that falls through the cracks. In fact, everyone he has called, everyone the Father has given him, will end up exalted, getting the glory that only Christ deserves. See, see the people that rejected the invite for their, their ox, their field, their marriage, that, in a sense, is the best it will ever be for them. But for the Christian, in a sense, right now is the worst it will ever be for each and every one of you because we know we have a joyous feast to look forward to in eternity. And these promises are not dependent on our worthiness, but Christ's kindness. It's not about honoring God enough. You will never honor God enough. It's about admitting that you won't and trusting in the Lord to save you. As one pastor put it, God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to save themselves. So we can take heart. Your place in eternity is not about being invitable. In fact, the most invitable people from a human standard were the ones that rejected the invitation. It's the ones who know they are unworthy that are brought into the kingdom at the end of the day. So as you go forth into your week, don't look to yourself, your own worthiness or obedience for hope. Think about the kindness of the host, who out of pure grace prepared a great banquet for many. And we know that his great banquet at the end of the day will be filled. If you join me for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your abundant kindness to us in Christ. Lord, we know that we do not give you the honor and glory you deserve, that our motivations are at best mixed, that we do not have a pure heart, that we so often lust after the honor and approval of man and desire to be repaid temporarily on this earth instead of investing in treasures in heaven. But Lord, you have not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation, that whether we sleep or awake, we may live forever with you. God, we pray that we would hold on to these promises, that we would be confident in your 
good work, Jesus, in which you walked this earth, you died on that cross, and you rose again that we may live forever with you. So Lord, please just give us confidence in who you are and what your word says. Teach us to look to the cross. Teach us to actually apply what that actually looks like to our lives. And we just thank you for your supreme and unending and immeasurable kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.